You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, uh, 12 lectures, excuse me, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is Lecture 6. It is entitled European Culture and Its Relationship to the Latin Language, Greek and Roman Mysteries, given in Dornach on the 8th of July, 1923. From the two lectures yesterday and the day before, you'll have seen that from an anthroposophic point of view, we have to recognize how important it is to address in the proper manner what was happening in Europe in the course of the 19th century. We were able to connect the phenomena we looked at with what has proved to be the real feature of modern times, which from the middle of the 15th century onward we can count as the underlying characteristic of the spiritual and historical development of Europe. Now, taking those two lectures as the basis, today I'd like to open up our sight and timelines for a larger perspective. We have to be clear that on the one hand European development in the 19th century saw the rise of materialism, and I count as materialism everything that can refer only to material phenomena when explaining anything about the world, that sees no necessity to turn to the spiritual when dealing with all that sustains human beings in the world or that guides their development. And on the other hand, in addition to materialism, we have to take into account the rise of intellectualism or rationalism, the view that only accepts what it perceives as logical concepts. You mustn't assume that because I speak about a logical way of thinking, there must be another illogical or even an anti-logical counterpart. This is not what I mean, of course. For reality, however... Logic is similar to what the skeleton is for the human being. Logic is always the dead part. This is why the mere logic of reason that human beings have struggled with so ingeniously promotes a materialism related only to dead substance. Now, today, only studying the true reasons for the rise of materialism on the one hand and rationalism on the other with no illusions, can help advance human civilization. So today, we must go back a little further in time in order to give some background to what we talked about yesterday and the day before. I've often pointed out what a deep rift there is between what Greek culture once was, that culture which was at least partly expressed in the Greek language, and what gradually developed to the west of it, in the Latin language. I've also often mentioned the view of Hermann Grimm, who says that we modern people can still understand the Romans, because basically we have the same concepts as they had, but the Greeks seem to him like the inhabitants of fairyland. 
I've written about this in more detail in the issue of title The Gertianum that has just appeared. Now we have to be clear about that Eastern Europe, which I also tried to describe yesterday, perhaps rather controversially for some of those present today, went through a wave of civilization strongly influenced in later ages by the Greeks. In the east of Europe we encounter late blossoms of Greek sensibility. In western and central Europe, however, Latin culture spread intensively. And the differences that I described to you in the last two lectures are basically the result of what was a continuing Greek influence in the East and a Roman one in the West. Don't forget that the West was in a much better position to digest Roman culture than was Eastern Europe. The West absorbed the Latin language, for example. Latin had a pathological effect on Central Europe. Only if we can clearly perceive this phenomenon the final effects of which are currently playing out most dramatically, can we get our bearings in the present cultural situation. Let us look at the situation first from a Central European perspective. I'd like to draw your attention to what Fritz Mautner contended from the language side, a linguistic point of view. Mautner intended to write not so much a critique of reason, basically a critique of concepts like Kant, but more a critique of language. He thought he'd discovered that when people spoke about higher things, they were really only speaking in words, and that they didn't notice they were only speaking in words. Furthermore, if we study how people use words, such as God, spirit, soul, goodness, and so on, then we see that people believe that in using these words they have something real. But in reality, they're only using words without indicating anything. Now, I've already pointed out that this whole thinking of Mautner's doesn't apply when we're dealing with natural objects, because in that case people can differentiate very well between the word and the thing. At least I've never had the experience that someone going riding would try to mount the word horse instead of getting on a real horse. But it's a different matter when we're dealing with the soul or with an ethical or moral question, and this seems to vindicate Mautner. As regards the soul, there are words handed down from the past that people repeat, but the insights connected to them haven't been transmitted. They're using words like soul or spirit but they don't have any insight into what they mean. Mautner noticed this on the soul level and thought he could generalize. In the case of the soul or of the ethical-moral realm, moral impulses, for example, have gradually lost their substance and only exist as commandments or even laws from the outside. Thus, for much of our vocabulary, real insight into the word has been lost. This is why it's so arduous trying to find an expression for the most important faculties of the human soul, thinking, feeling, and willing. For thinking, feeling, and willing are things that everybody talks about without having any real idea what they are. The question is, can we discover what's behind the words? 
we have to be clear that for many centuries the kind of education which leads ultimately to the life of the spirit was communicated in the Latin language. And the Latin language became not just as an external description, but in a real inner sense, a dead language. The Latin language that people had to learn in the Middle Ages if they wanted access to higher education was becoming more and more a mechanism per se, a logical mechanism per se. You can trace this process if you look at history in the way we did for the 19th century yesterday and the day before. If we look at human life from the inside, then we see that in the 4th century CE, the Latin language gradually ceased being experienced internally. It no longer expresses the logos, but only the sheaths of the logos. It survives in the Italian or the French language, which assimilated a lot of Latin. So they absorbed, too, some of the death process of the Latin language, but they also assimilated what emanated from the various peoples who moved from east to west and settled in the west. In Italian and in French, this other aspect lives on not only in the words, but also in the structure of the language and in the dramatic aspect. However pure Latin has petrified, the living experiences have disappeared, and in its petrification it has become the dominant scientific language. And it's precisely the language that we have to study if we want to understand why the medieval world view took on the form that it did. Consider the fact that people were forced into this language as children. They didn't go through a process of forming the language out of their own experiences. Rather, the language was poured into them as a ready-made instrument. And from the way in which the words were connected grammatically, they learned logic. Logic became something that was poured into them from outside. The relationship of the human soul to intellectual education became looser and looser, and people couldn't move enthusiastically from their own experience into education, but were absorbed into a foreign element of education, the petrified Latin element. This then spread out in the soul and pushed what people had already experienced aside and more deeply back into them, into a soul region where they didn't need logic. Just think of how things were in the Middle Ages and how they were when we were young, if you're as old as me. Then if we said something in our mother tongue and someone in the group didn't understand it, we quickly translated it into Latin and everything was clear. But it became cold and sober. It became logical. If something was expressed in a Latin grammatical case, then you understood how strictly and precisely it was meant. During the centuries of the Middle Ages, they always did this. In their spoken language, people allowed themselves the greatest sloppiness because they associated precision or accuracy with thinking in Latin, which was foreign to them. And because it was foreign and human beings can only reach the spirit through the soul, the Latin language petrified to such an extent that you couldn't use a word if you didn't have the object available in the physical world of the senses. In the case of the horse, it didn't work if you only had the word for it, because then you 
couldn't have ridden it. But for all supersensible phenomena, the content drained slowly out of the words, and people were left with the empty shells. And then later, as their mother tongue developed, they just translated the word into it. Thus they didn't convey the experience. By putting anima and soul together, whereby anima had lost all real substance, soul also lost all real substance. And so it came about that the Latin language was only suitable for use with the external sense world. There you have, from a linguistic point of view, one of the reasons why theology in the Middle Ages said, through science we can only understand external things, and at the most the connections between them. But we have to leave the supersensible to faith. If they had developed the strength to speak the whole truth, they would have said, the human being can only perceive what can be expressed in Latin and must leave the rest to a faith that is inexpressible and can only be felt. You see, in a sense, this is the truth, and the rest is illusion. The truth is that over the centuries, the prevailing view was that only what can be expressed in the Latin language is scientifically true. Then, in the 18th century, the pretension of the national language arose. Now, at that time, the various regions of Europe had completely different relationships to their national language. Where Latin still held sway, the vernacular could find its way into education more easily. Hence we have the situation in Western Europe that we talked about the day before yesterday, that social life, social bonds, as I called them, developed in a popular way, so that everyone could take part. This is because in the West, as national feeling arose, it was related to Latin. In Central Europe this was completely impossible because the national languages had no Latin influence. They were very different from Latin. At the top, however, were the elite who had to learn Latin to gain access to education. Here the difference was enormous, and here is the origin of the whole tragedy of Central Europe that I talked about yesterday. This is the tragedy taking place between the mass of the people who didn't learn Latin and therefore had no science, for science was always spoken of in Latin, and those who studied science, who switched over for the duration of their science studies. In normal life, when they ate and drank in the company of their compatriots, they were uneducated people, because they were speaking languages containing no education. But when they were scientists, then they were different. They put on their inner cap and gown. This meant that an educated person was basically someone divided in themselves. This affected the intellectual life of Central Europe profoundly. For a variety of reasons that we will talk about later, the vernacular contained only what we said yesterday was on the one hand an astrological element and on the other hand an alchemistic element. These live in the national languages, which had an inherent spirituality. In Europe, the vernacular languages had no materialism. Materialism was forced onto them from the materialism of the Latin language, which, as it ceased to be the language of the educated, 
still left behind the basic attitudes it had nurtured in that time. So the Central European languages couldn't find a balance with what had been established through the Latin language as education. This is an extremely serious matter. We can observe this situation up to the present day. I'll show you a practical example of how strongly we can see it today. In various universities you can study economics, as it is called. This field of study has developed out of legal concepts and these are wholly the offspring of Latin culture. To think legally means to think in Latin, even today. Unfortunately, these economic concepts bring us back to things, in quotes. Just as you can't ride the word horse, so you can't eat mere economic concepts. You can't keep house with them. As science has developed out of Latin culture, most people aren't aware of this, so current economic science has no real substance. Economics, as it's taught today, only understands what has nothing to do with reality, because it originated with Latin, failed to establish a connection with contemporary reality, and only spins everything out from ideas. We could say that especially in the case of economics, there is a contradiction. I spoke yesterday about those people in Central Europe who were called contemplators. They came from the folk traditions and had therefore the old astrology and alchemy. Contemplator means those who contemplate. People who carried Latin over into economic studies were not contemplators. They were spinners. I mean that seriously. The whole science of economics has been spun out of a mere logical net, which is what has become of the Latin language. Last autumn I gave a course on the world economy. This was about the real thing and not just the empty word. During this it became increasingly clear that when we speak about the realities of economic life, students of economics can't bring this together with what they learn, with what is just words. It doesn't fit together. Now someone could say, then we should hold a parallel course that brings the conceptual empty shell that is modern economics into line with what we learn from reality. But that would mean we should explain the fruitfulness of an orange on the basis of the discarded orange skin. That's just not possible. If we really want to gain knowledge from reality, then we can't just study the empty shell. If we are to understand reality, then we must work anew from the original substance. In a general education, which is not permeated by Latin, but still includes, in a form no longer appropriate for the times, the old science of the heavens and of the earth, astrology and alchemy, there developed the following notion. Just as science is what can be said in Latin, so is all that cannot be said in Latin, but only in the vernacular, superstition. This is not explicit, because people like to pretty things up. But our whole education is saturated, on the one hand, with the belief that science is all that can be put into Latin, and on the other hand, superstition is all that cannot be put into Latin, but has to be expressed in the vernacular. This is a phenomenon that was much less widespread in the West. 
but was an awful tragedy in Central Europe. Then again much less widespread in the East. Firstly, in the East they had allowed Greek, which was much more permeated with the juice of reality, to flow into their culture. Secondly, they didn't take the terrible struggle between their ethnic vitality and petrified Latin culture so much to heart. The people of the East just looked on and said, it's only people who've fallen out of paradise who get caught up in struggles like that. Here in the East, we're still in paradise. It only looks as if we've fallen down. We're inner human beings. So you see, we have to go into this if we are to understand the terrible rift that exists today between those people who live in what has been built in the Latin style and those who, as homeless souls, a description I used here just a short while ago, now seek the way to the Spirit out of the elemental depths of their own being. People are confronted with the tremendous authority of what is a branch of Latin culture. This respect for Latin cultures behind the contemporary belief in the authority of science. Just think what it meant over the centuries when a farmer's son went to the monastery school and had to learn Latin. In the holidays he came home and could speak Latin. Nobody understood anything of what he'd learned, but they all accepted that they shouldn't and couldn't understand what led to science, to knowledge. That they knew. The farmer's boy who went to the monastery school spoke the language of knowledge, and the other farmer's boys who worked in the fields had an enormous respect. We have respect not for what we know, but for what we can't know. This respect for what we can't know is consolidated by the fact that we don't even make a claim to it. This perpetuates itself and takes on forms that we can only understand if we have the will to follow the spiritual paths of humanity. The farmer's boy in the 12th, 13th century, who helped with the plowing and with other tasks, knew we can't know anything. We'll never be able to know anything, because only those people can know things who've learned Latin. That's what the farmer's boys would have said then. This continues under the surface, and a few centuries later a scientist gives a speech to the Enlightened Naturalists' Conference, the highlight of which is the same as the farmer's boy said of the monastery school boy, We cannot know. Ignorabimus. If we had a feeling for it, we could go back centuries and find the origins of this statement of Dubois Raymond's in what the farmer's boy, who hadn't learned Latin, said to the boy who had. Now a dead language such as Latin, which has become petrified, has the tendency to deaden the words too. However, what is dead in the world is matter. So in those regions where it was particularly dominant, the Latin language had the tendency to push things toward the dead, that is to say, toward the material. As I've mentioned before, originally people knew very well what the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ meant. They knew this from living experience. The people could have known this too, but the alchemy of the people, not being in a Latin language, counted as superstition. The Latin language, however, couldn't keep hold 
of the spiritual. This is how the trivial belief arose about what we imagine is the material aspect of the bread and the wine, which had to be transformed. Also, all the discussions about the teachings of the Last Supper, which only showed that those taking part in the discussion had absorbed these teachings in the Latin language. But the words had become so petrified that people could no longer understand the living, just as the anatomists of today can't understand the living human being from studying corpses. Not to have the influence of Latin in its language was a terrible tragedy for Central Europe. The language of Central Europe needed to be able to grow into the living spirit, but thinking was a dead thing because it was dependent on Latin. Concepts couldn't find words, and words couldn't find concepts. For example, the word soul could have found its living equivalent, as did the word psyche in ancient Greece. But in the meantime, there was Latin culture, which knew nothing of living reality, and even killed off the living reality that still existed in the vernacular. This is why it's so important today to look at the deep rift that had developed between Greek and Roman culture. And this deep rift is very much in evidence when we study the mysteries. If we look at Greek first, we have the Eloicinian mysteries, which were the most popular. They were the mysteries that most popularized the spiritual path. The people who were initiated into the Eloicinian mysteries were the Telestes. Let us look at what is meant by the name Eloisis and the word Telestes. Eloisis is just the linguistic transformation of the word Elosis, which means the place of the human beings of the future, those who wish to bear the future within themselves. Eloisis means what is coming, and the Telestes, or the Eloisinian initiates, are the coming people. This shows that these people were aware that they were incomplete, imperfect, and that they had to become the coming people who bear the future within themselves. Telos anticipates the future and what will only gradually manifest in the future. In the Eloicinian mysteries, that place of the people of the future, the imperfect human being was transformed into the perfect one and became a telest. The whole meaning of these initiations broke down when the mysteries were transferred to Rome. In Greece, the whole initiation pointed toward the future, to the end of the earth. Human beings should develop a strong inner impulse so that they could find the right way after the end of the earth. Then you were a telest, who would go on to develop after the end of the earth in the right way. But when this was brought over into Roman culture, the expression telest became the initiate, initium, which means the beginning. So the goal was relocated from the end of the earth to the beginning. The telestes became the initiates. Those who were initiated into the secrets of the future became those who knew about the past. The Promethean seekers became Epimethean, those who seek knowledge of the past. However, only abstract knowledge can remain of the past. If we want to develop into the future, we need a living knowledge, full of willpower, 
The will has to develop accordingly. The past is past. We can certainly develop higher knowledge by going back to the initium, the past, but it's still only knowledge and becomes more and more abstract. Thus the impulse to abstract, to petrify, gained pace from the 4th century CE and found its way more and more into the Latin language. People wanted to return to the past where ideas were connected to life because they knew that it was no longer the case, that now if they reached out for ideas, they ended up in a kind of petrified speech. In Greece, being initiated meant receiving a higher life into your soul. In Roman culture, being initiated meant abandoning all higher life for the duration of your earthly life, and at most thinking about it as follows. In the beginning of the earth, we human beings had a higher life, but we've fallen away from that now, and we can't be active like that anymore. At most we can know something of this higher knowledge. These are the difficulties we're faced with today. When we form the word initiation, for instance, Einweihung in German, it contains the verb Weihen, which indicates quite literally, quote, submerging underwater, close quote, leaving the sharp contours of physical life behind you and immersing yourself in the elusive, watery element of the world, so that your soul moves in the weaving, living, flowing spiritual dimension. To initiate someone is to lead them into the moving, fluctuating, fluid world of life itself. Now they had to translate this, and they translated it into its opposite, into initiation, meaning beginning. It's important to know that such contradictions, such difficulties exist in our modern civilization. We have to be clear about these spearheads, as I'd like to call them, that can do us so much harm. Only then can there develop what will help us to make real progress. Of course, I don't want to hold a tirade against the learning of Latin, just the opposite. I'd like people to learn more Latin, so that they can get a feeling for the fact that with Latin you can only describe dead things. Latin has its rightful place in the anatomy lesson in the dissecting room. But if we want to study not what is dead but what is living, and we have to turn to the living elements of the language. We can't shape the future with some kind of abstract intention, but only with a vision free of all illusion, which can create from the dead the life of the spirit. And we're living in a moment of time when this is all becoming very acute in the life of the spirit. We're living in tremendously important times. I don't know how many of you took seriously what I wrote in the last few issues of title The Gertianum, namely that twenty, fifteen, ten years ago you could quote someone like Hermann Grimm just like a contemporary. Today he belongs to the past, and we can only speak of him as belonging to the past. I meant what I said in these four articles touching on Grimm very seriously. As you know, I used to like to quote Hermann Grimm, but in quite a different manner than I quote him now. I used to quote him where it was possible to show a spirit directed toward the future. Today he belongs to the past, to history, and we can quote this man, who until recently was such a contemporary presence, 
only when it's a question of illustrating an aspect of ancient Greek or Roman civilization. But I have to admit that this passage of time, which becomes the past remarkably quickly, demands something else of us, and we sleep through much of it. This gentle sleepwalking is something we are much given to today. However, anthroposophy is knowledge which we don't just gather as ideas, but which is supposed to wake us up. This is why so many of my lectures are meant to wake people up. The end of Lecture 6